Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren which are with me under the churches of Galatia. Grace be unto you and peace from God the Father, from our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another. But there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so now I say again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. For do I now persuade men or God, or do I seek to please men? For if I yet pleased men, I should not be the servant of Christ. But I certify to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man, for I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. Hello, and you are listening to the Church Militant Podcast, a podcast that exists to encourage you to contend earnestly for the faith once for all delivered to the saints, to take up the weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left, to see Christ as worthy of all sacrifice, to stand firm and fight the good fight of faith. If you are familiar with me on the personal level, maybe you have seen that I have become the center of some small-town evangelical controversy this past week as I expressed some concern about what was being labeled as a revival. A revival where multiple people are professing faith in Christ. A revival where a multitude of people are, quote-unquote, rededicating their lives to Christ. And I came out with some concern, and that concern is rooted in the fact that I do not believe that the church where this is taking place preaches the true biblical gospel. Just to give you a flavor of some of the concern that, and pushback that I've received, this is coming from a gentleman named Craig Paget. He said on my Facebook post where I said, Apparently a revival is happening with so many people being saved. Let's give it six months and see who is still in church. Because I come from these circles. I was raised in an independent, fundamentalist, King James, hellfire, damnation. We don't associate with anybody. Women wear skirts, men wear shirts and ties, Baptist church. And I sat in literally hundreds of these meetings where, quote-unquote, God would come and get all over somebody, and they would take off hollering and running around the room, and the, the music would last for two or three hours, and it's slow, and it's dirgy, and it's emotional, and people are weeping and going to the altar and, quote-unquote, getting things right with God, or getting help, or getting in, or nailing it down, or whatever, whatever southern gospel terminology you want to use. So, speaking from... 20 years of personal experience in that environment, I said, let's see what happens. Because in my experience, a gospel that is based on emotionalism, 
that is driven by decisionism, a gospel where repentance just means change your mind about what hasn't been working for you and give Jesus a try, a gospel that is presented in such a way as to persuade men by fear of eternity in hell or fear of being left behind, but you don't have to fear those things. You can get in tonight. That is no gospel. This is what Mr. Paget said. I'm not here to argue with anyone, but I'm just wondering if you could show me in whatever version of the Bible you read where it says that it's okay to bash any church, especially a service that you didn't even attend. And he goes on. Someone had made some uh, uh, an inappropriate comment that is not true of the church at large, saying that this church teaches that if you don't believe the King James Bible, or if you don't use the King James Bible, you can't be saved. That's not the position of the church. I, I don't know that to be the position of the church. I didn't make that statement. Someone else did. So then he made a statement about that. But then he said to me, as a quote-unquote preacher, you should be praying for those new Christians. What they do in six months is between them and God. And in the meantime, I will be praying for them instead of judging them. Better yet, you could meet me there at this meeting tomorrow night, and we can pray for them together. What do I want to address is this first part. Can you show me in whatever version of the Bible you read where it says that it's okay to bash any church? Well, first of all, I wasn't bashing a church. I was questioning the validity of conversions in a place where I do not believe the gospel is being preached. And here's why. Though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. Let him be anathema. Let him be damned by God. Those aren't my words. These are the Holy Spirit-inspired words of the Apostle Paul. The text that this podcast is built off of, Jude chapter 1, where Jude says, Although I wanted to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it more necessary to write to you, compelling you to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints, because certain people have crept in unaware who turn and pervert the gospel of Christ, making it into licentiousness, sensuality, sinfulness. So I want to address in this episode critiquing or criticizing or whatever terminology you want to use, false gospels. And I want to do that from the Apostle Paul here in this opening section of the book of Galatians. The church at Galatia had been planted by the ministry of Paul. He had come to them with the gospel. Apparently, he had suffered physically to bring them the gospel. He says, if, if, if you could have, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. So apparently, he's suffering some physical ailment, and he persists in staying there to preach the gospel and plant the church among them. You could say that Paul has literally given his blood, his sweat, his tears to reach this church and to see the gospel proclaimed there. And yet, as we read the opening of this letter to them, there's no greeting filled with joy and thanksgiving like we see in Paul's other epistles. There's no 
There's no declaration on his part about how he remembers them, how he longs to see them, how he's thankful for them. There's no softening of them up by affirming their perseverance in the faith like we see in the book of Corinthians. There's no commendation of their purity and their patience like we see him writing to Timothy about. Rather, what we see is Paul opens up with a full-on frontal attack upon the disastrous distortion of the gospel taking place in Galatia. He says, I am astonished, I marvel, I am appalled that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. The reason that he is so upset, the reason he writes the way he does is because when the church turns away from the gospel, it ceases to be a church. Regardless of the attendance, regardless of who stands in the pulpit, regardless of the cultural ideology behind what a church is, regardless of whether you think the 11th commandment is thou shalt not judge anybody who calls himself a Christian, whatever it is, the severity of the gospel is being set forth here that Paul is saying you've turned away from the gospel and in doing so you have deserted him who called you into the grace of Christ. And as he does this, I want us to notice some, a few things about the gospel. The first thing I want us to notice here in this passage is the source of the gospel. He says in verses 11 and 12 of Galatians chapter 1, I certify you, brethren, I testify to you, brothers, the gospel which was preached of me is not after man. I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. And we look at the opening section and he he begins the letter this way in verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. He's emphasizing here that he is an apostle, not from men. He's not preaching under the name of a denomination. He doesn't, he doesn't look back to his Bible college, their seminary that he went to. He hasn't been sent out by other men. He's not an apostle through the authority of other men. He was not made an apostle by men. He was made an apostle through Jesus Christ and God the Father. He's referring back to his conversion on the Damascus Road when Christ himself knocked him off his horse with all the radiant beauty and splendor of his glorious, exalted majesty and called him into the ministry to proclaim his name to the Gentiles. And Paul is saying, the gospel that I'm preaching has authority, and the authority is Christ himself. This isn't Paul's gospel versus the Galatian gospel. This is the gospel versus the distorted gospel being proclaimed in Galatia. A lot of people, whenever you, whenever you want to hold someone accountable to the Scripture, you want to ask, even if you just want to ask a question from the Scripture, it's instantaneously turned into you versus them. Well, who do you think you are? Why do you think you have the right to bash this? What? what, what da, 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 da. But this isn't me versus anyone, any more than it's Paul versus the Galatians. This is the gospel you proclaim versus God's gospel. This is where the authority comes from. Because we see not just the source of gospel authority, but the source of the gospel message. Paul says, this is not man's gospel. No man taught it to me. I received it from a revelation of Christ himself means the message of the gospel is not a message invented by man. It isn't a personal, subjective truth. It's not open to disagreement. It's not even open to various interpretations. It's the very message that Christ himself 
gave to Paul. Paul is saying, the gospel that I preached to you, it came directly from Christ. I'm not just repeating some man-made system. The conclusion then is this. The gospel belongs to God. It's God's gospel. The gospel, by definition, is news, good news. And it is news that has been revealed to us by God himself. Therefore, we do not have the authority to alter it. We do not have the authority to water it down. We do not have the freedom to interpret it however we want or according to our denomination or our traditions. It's God's gospel. It isn't open for interpretation. It isn't open for change. It isn't open for improvement, for disagreement, for relativism. It's not to be set aside because it is God. God's gospel. It's the message of God himself. And we see the importance of the source and authority of the gospel as Paul goes on to speak of, secondly, the heart of the gospel. He says in verse 3, Grace be unto you, and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from the present evil world, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. In this short, simple reminder, we see all the glory of the gospel brought forth in these, this one little phrase, our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us. There's no greater truth in the world. There's no truth so glorious. There's nothing else that will bring God among men to dwell and give his life as a ransom for sinful, rebellious men. There's no truth so glorious that it provides men with a substitute, with a salvation of free grace. There's no truth so powerful. No other truth can go to the tomb of a dead man, a dead man and call him to life and impart to him new life and a new heart and faith in Jesus Christ. There's only one gospel truth that delivers men from the power of sin and the flesh and the devil and the wrath of God. And that is this great truth, that Christ Jesus himself came to deliver us from our sins. But before we get to the heart of the gospel centered on Christ, we have to understand the gospel begins with God. The gospel is good news, euangelion. That's what it means. It means good news. It comes from the old English to have a good spell. That's where we get the word gospel. The gospel is news. It is good news, but it actually begins with the most terrifying news that you could ever encounter, and that is that God is good. And this is not just some God who's one among the pantheon of world religions. This is not some idol or some image constructed in the minds of men. The gospel begins with the one living and true God. The gospel begins with the God who is infinitely holy, who is above creation and above creation's corruption. It begins with the God who is the creator, the sustainer, and the governor of all things, the sovereign Lord who sits in the heavens and does all that he pleases. The God who works all things according to the counsel of his will, the almighty God, the one who inhabits eternity, the one whose name is holy, the one whose eyes are so pure that he cannot look upon iniquity, the God who is light and in whom there is no darkness at all, the one before whom the angels cover their faces, the God before whom even the heavens are not pure in his sight, 
the one who sits enthroned above all things, the one whose kingdom rules over all, the one who dwells in inapproachable light, the one who has created angelic beings whose entire existence is to cover his throne, crying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. This is the one who's created all things to testify of his glory, the God who shines forth in infinite manifold perfections, the God who is influenced by none, who is changed and challenged by nothing, whose years have no beginning and no end, the God who is from everlasting to everlasting. And this God is only and absolutely good. And now, you may be thinking, I don't know why you said that the gospel begins with terrible news. That sounds like good news. I think God is good too. God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. It's what, it's what we say. But the gospel doesn't just tell us about God and his goodness. The reason it terrifies us is because of the way Paul describes us in this passage. Paul feels the need to mention the chief concern of man, which makes the gospel the most important message of all time. And it's summed up here in these two world, these two words found at the end of verse 3, or the beginning of verse 4, rather, our sins. You see, the message of the gospel is not that men are generally good. The message of the gospel is not that you are just the sum of your bad choices, but really on the inside you're good. If you can just overcome your bad habits or give Jesus a try, he's, you're pretty good, but the one thing you're missing is Jesus. If you, just, if you just add Jesus to the equation, that you'll really find peace and meaning and fulfillment. We are sinners. Sin is lawlessness. God has revealed his will for mankind. He gives us his law. He shows us this is what pleases me. This is the revelation of my character. This is what's required for fellowship with me. And we have been born in iniquity. We were brought forth in sin. And sin did our mothers conceive us. We're brought forth in iniquity. The fault of man's heart is only evil continually. The scripture says, and you know these passages, tells us that sin has corrupted man completely and universally. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. No one understandeth, no one seeketh after God. All have turned aside and become worthless. No one does good, not even one. The sin of man has caused this great impassable chasm between God and man. Because remember, although God is good, he said that he is of eyes so pure that he cannot look upon iniquity and sin. And this is a chasm that is not only impossible for man to cross, there's nothing that we can do. Who can ascend to the hill of the Lord? Only him who has clean hands. When we come to the law of God, the purpose that it serves for sinful men is to show them the filthiness of their righteous deeds. They're just filthy minstrel rags. All our righteousness is filthy rags. And not only is it impossible for us to work our way to God, the reality of the God's gospel is that the chasm between man and God is one that man doesn't even have a desire to cross. John chapter 3, we all know the passage because of the great declaration, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, so that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life, everlasting life. We, we fail to keep going in that passage because Jesus actually goes on to say, This is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world. And men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. He goes on to say, and this is a paraphrase, those who do wicked things, they hate the light 
and they refuse to come to the light lest their deeds be exposed. Scripture tells us in Romans chapter 8 that the mind that is set on the flesh is at enmity with God. It will not submit to his law. Indeed, it cannot. Paul describes our situation in sin as slavery, bondage, captivity, and death. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, he says. Scripture tells us that just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. The wages of sin is death. This is where the gospel is terrifying because this good and holy and infinite God who who is given to us life and breath and everything is the God against whom we are at enmity. Sin is not just this isolated thing that's out there against people. We are sinners and rebels against God. And justice is where God and man meet in the gospel message. It's the collision of the holy, perfect, righteous God and sinful, rebellious man. The relationship between God and our sins, it's not merely a relationship of death that merits death, but this death is not just physical death, it's spiritual death and it's eternal death on the last day. Scripture describes us in Ephesians 2 as being dead in our trespasses and sins, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, sons of disobedience, carrying out the passions of our flesh, the desires of the body and the mind, by nature children of wrath. Scripture tells us in Romans 1, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And this justice, the reality is that God in his infinite manifold perfections cannot and will not pardon the guilty. But as he told Moses, he will visit the iniquity of sinners upon them. A soul that sinneth, it shall die. Scripture tells us that God is angry with the wicked every day. Even now he has bent and readied his bow, Psalm 7. He has wet his sword. The wrath of God abides on sinners even now. Justly so, because God is good. And this tells us that this good God of perfect justice is not just sweeping sins under the rug. But this is the very reason the gospel is good news. Because this God, the God with whom you have to do, the God that you will stand before one day, and apart from being in Christ, the terror of that sight, the scriptures tell us in Revelation 20, earth and heaven itself flee away and there's no place for them. You will be there suspended before God, nowhere to run, nowhere to hide, and you will stand before the full fury of his wrathful vengeance. But this same God, the same God that you curse in your heart, the same God that you sin against, the same God that you refuse to come to and have life, that same God who gives you life and breath and everything while you use your life and breath and everything to completely mock Him in your sin, that same God is the same God who has decreed and purposed and brought about salvation through God the Son, Jesus Christ. Again, the very heart of the gospel is seen in these words here in Galatians 1. Our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from the present evil world. The message is not about what we can do to fix ourselves. 
The message is not about, oh, God, could Jesus could come at any time, so you better get in before it's too late. The message is not what we must do to deliver ourselves. It's not about our worth being so great that Jesus just loved us so much and we can't understand what he saw in us that was worthy. The scripture says he didn't see anything in you. There was nothing in you to move God. Just grace. God the Son left the Father's throne above. So free, so infinite his grace. He took on flesh, took on the form of a servant, was born in the likeness of men. He took on flesh to fulfill the righteous requirement of God's law in your stead. He took on flesh to submit perfectly to the will of God, to live a life of perfect obedience that you couldn't live so that the righteous requirement of God's law might be met in you if you come to Christ. And not only that, but he took the wrath of God that you deserved. And the scripture says that the wicked are, are storing up and drinking down sin and iniquity like water. And God's wrath is foaming in his cup, ready to be poured out. And Christ took the cup. He took the cup and he said, Father, if it's not possible, unless I drink this cup, your will be done. And he went to the cross and he took on the sins of his people. Scripture says this, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that he might bring us to God. By his stripes we have been healed. He took our sins, the wrath of God against our sins in this cup, and he drank it down. And he turned it over and he said, It is finished. This is the answer to the separation between God and man. See, the problem is the enmity has to be overcome. There has to be reconciliation. There must be a mediator. This is what Job recognized. He said, how can I go in to plead my case before the Lord? There is no arbiter. Who can go and mediate between me and God? What shall I say before him? The scripture tells us this. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, the one who, who, who hung naked on the cross, suspended between heaven and earth, rejected by the sons of men and put on a cross and cast out by God as he turned his face away, as he poured out his wrath on him and could not look upon him with approval as he bore our sins. This one who became man and who is God can lay hold of God and lay hold of man and reconcile us together by his death and by his blood. This wasn't the backup plan. This was not plan B. It's not the response of God because man fell into sin or because man rejected Jesus. This was his plan all along. That's what he told Eve in the garden. The seed of the woman is coming, and he will crush the head of the serpent. The Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us. That is the heart of the gospel. And not only that he might deliver us from sin, but that he might deliver us unto God. The message of salvation is not merely a get-out-of-hell-free card. It's a message of reconciliation with God. And we see the result of this gospel message, the result of delivering us from this evil age according to the will of our God and Father, all of this happening to the glory of our God and Father forever and ever, the result of this gospel is grace and peace. He says to them, the only positive thing he says in this opening exhortation to them is grace to you.
and peace. This is, this is the gifts of the gospel. Grace, that giving what has not been earned. And in our, our situation as sinners, the very opposite of what we deserve. We deserve wrath and hell and damnation and separation justly. And in, in, the, in the place of that, because Christ suffered for sinners, God gives us grace and life and adoption and His Spirit. Reconciled to Him, united together with Christ. Join heirs with Christ, seated with Him in the heavenly places. God, who is rich in mercy, the Scripture says, because of the great love with which we, He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. You've been called by God's grace. You stand in God's grace if you are in Christ. You are kept forever by His grace for this inheritance that is kept pure and undefiled awaiting you in heaven forever. That's the result of the gospel. This is why Paul can say, grace to you. But not only grace, peace. Paul told the Romans, therefore, since we, having now been justified by faith, we have peace with God. The enmity has been done away with. Peace means we are no longer objects of wrath. We are at peace with God. This is the power of the gospel. He is no longer our judge. He is no longer the one who stands over us with his righteous sword, with his holy indignation being ready to pour out on us justly. But now we've been moved from sinners and rebels and children of disobedience by nature, objects of wrath. Now we are the children of God if we are in Christ. This is what the gospel does. And when we become children, we become heirs. Heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ. Heirs of eternal life. That's the heart of the gospel. This is the non-negotiable, authoritative gospel of God. This is what brings sinners to life. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. This is the gospel message. Paul said this in Romans 1. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is is the power of God unto salvation for everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. This is the power. This is the message that God uses to actually save people. And the whole point of this is the glory of God. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And as Paul is writing to this church who is turning away from the heart of this gospel, having told them of the message of the gospel, he goes on to remind them of the seriousness of the gospel. In verse 6, I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another. But there are some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so say I now again. If any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. His first response here is amazement. He says he marvels, he's amazed, he's bewildered, astonished, dumbfounded that in the place of this great glorious gospel that God actually uses to bring dead sinners to life. It's the preaching of this gospel that God uses by His Spirit to regenerate a man and breathe new life into him. It's, this is the voice of the Son of God saying to those who are in the tombs, live in the place of that gospel. These Galatians had turned away to a different gospel. 
Not that it's a real gospel. It's a perverted gospel, a twisted, a distorted, a sick, disgusting gospel. And Paul shows us here the biblical response to those who would call themselves Christians and yet embrace a false gospel. See, the, the Galatians had turned away from this pure gospel and was preaching that people needed to believe in Christ, yes, but also if you don't keep the whole law of Moses perfectly, circumcision, keeping the law of Moses, and you're not saved. They had embraced a false gospel. And Paul actually says, as I mentioned earlier, they haven't just turned away from the message, they've turned away from God himself. They have deserted him. They have, they have abandoned the one who called them into the grace of Christ. They have removed themselves from him who called them into the grace of Christ. This is the seriousness of the gospel. It's not simply splitting hairs. This isn't the Calvinist versus the Arminian. This isn't the way that you want to present the gospel versus the way he wants to present the gospel the seriousness of this. I want it to hit you. It's a turning away from God himself. And it should produce shock. It should produce confusion. It should produce carefulness with the gospel. Because there's only one true gospel. There's many things out there that call themselves gospel. There's many things out there that present themselves to be Christian. There's many messages out there that speak of Jesus, of his death, of his resurrection, of believing in him, of having eternal life. But there are sick perversions of the gospel that use all the right terminology by either adding to or taking away from or watering down the gospel. And so Paul doesn't just respond with amazement. He responds secondly with anathema. He says, if someone comes to you and preaches a different gospel, let him be accursed. The word accursed is the word anathema, and it literally means devoted by God to destruction. The seriousness of what Paul is saying here is if anyone preaches another gospel, let him be damned by God to hell. Does that sound harsh? Does that strike your modern ears? in a way that is uncomfortable. Who are you, old man, to answer back to God? Did God the Spirit not inspire these words? Ought this not to be passive Christians? Ought this not to be our response to those peddling false gospels, leading astray our friends, our family members, our neighbors? Paul says, if it's Paul, if it's me, if it's another apostle, if it's even an angel from heaven, if it's Jordan Grogan, if it's this church, if it's Steve Pope, if it's Paul Washer, if it's whoever, throw whoever's name in the hat you want. This is all, this, nobody's off limits from this. If someone comes and preaches another gospel other than this gospel, Paul says, let God damn that man. You see the severity of preaching the full Gospel of God. It's not a secondary issue. It's not up for debate. This is how seriously the church and you as a believer, if you are a believer, ought to take the purity of the gospel. We live in a day with the church on every corner here in the Bible Belt, southern states of America, 
and sadly, a gospel on every corner. We have the social gospel. A gospel that says we ought uh, the chief concern, chief problem man has is we need to be reconciled with each other. We need to overcome these racial and gender and sexual orientation differences, and we need to be reconciled to each other, and we need to be welcome, and we need to be affirming, and we need to apologize for our racism or for our bigotry, and we need to all just hold hands and sing kumbaya, and, and, and we look to the government as God, and government, tell us what our sins are, tell us how we ought to confess, tell us how we ought to take the sacraments, tell us what, what we have to do to be forgiven of our sins so that we can be accepted out here in the culture, and that's exactly what Paul said. I'm not trying to please men. I'm a servant of Christ. My goal is not to please men. So the, we see these gospels, the social gospel prosperity gospel. Hey, if you come to Jesus, sow a, sow a seed of faith into our ministry and watch God bless you. Joel Osteen in his million-dollar boats and houses and vacations and fancy suits and big church. He says Jesus. He says gospel. He says faith. He says heaven. He says God. That's not the gospel. We see what I call the Southern gospel. The, hey, you're a sinner, and because of that, you're going to hell, or you're going to get left behind and then go to hell. But I tell you what, you can get in tonight. Jesus died, and if you just ask him to come into your heart, then he'll save you. And you can come down here and ask him to come into your heart, and he'll save you. And you go out, and there's no life change, and you don't submit to him as Lord. You don't follow his commandments, even though he said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If we say that we know him, we ought to walk in the same manner in which he walked. Whoever says, I know him and doesn't keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Those aren't my words. Those are straight from the scripture, First John. None of that matters, because you can backslide, and if you go out into the world and you finally make your way back into church, just come on down to the front and do it again. Just so that you can know that you know that you know. If you doubt it all, just come down and say this prayer again and you can know. Write it in your Bible. Remember the place. And when you start doubting for whatever reason, you remember that date and you remember that place. Your name is written there. And if Jesus comes back tomorrow, you'll be in. And you know for sure that you can go to heaven when you die. There's no explanation of sin, of the holiness of God. That man is a rebel. There's no explanation of what it means that Jesus took your wrath. There's no proclamation of the glorious gift of the gospel, reconciliation with God. This is your problem. Not that you're not going to go to heaven when you die, but that you're at enmity with God and you can be reconciled. There's that good old boy gospel that says, "You're, you're pretty good, but you just need to add Jesus in there and then you'll find real fulfillment. There's the therapeutic, moralistic deism gospel that says, Whatever problems you have in your life, turn to Jesus. He's the answer. Having marriage problems, just turn to Jesus. Struggling with an addiction, just turn to Jesus. He can fix all your problems. And we've reduced Jesus to a golden ticket or a get-out-of-hell-free pass or a take-this-pill, Jesus pill, and it'll make everything better. That's not the gospel. There's the workspace gospel that if you... Share, the, share your message with enough people, knock on enough doors that you can get in. That's not the gospel. The message of the gospel is as we've shared, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone, to the glory of God alone. 
And I think Paul's making it clear here by his serious stance against the false gospels, the severity of the language he's using, that the people of God must draw the line in the sand and say, we will not move from this gospel. We will not desert the one who called us by his grace. And we will not proclaim anything less than this gospel for the glory of our God because of our love for the Savior who purchased us and because of our concern for the lost to whom we proclaim it because only this gospel saves. You can get decisions. You can make people repeat prayers. You can fill up attendance rosters, fill out decision cards. You can build a church. You can do all of those things. But if it isn't this gospel, there is no salvation. False gospels do not save and now this may sound harsh, and I admit in times and cultures like ours, it is harsh. It, is, it does come across uncomfortable. A message like this one is completely opposite of what is accepted. But we have to understand, and we're not seeking the approval of men. Paul says, am I now, do I now persuade men or God? Do I seek to please man? If I yet please man, I would not be the servant of Christ. The gospel is not open to being changed or conformed to please the hearers. It's not that the preacher might win approval. It's not to announce numbers of conversions. And to go back with my original quarrel with the genuineness of a revival that preaches a gospel of emotions and fear and decision, decisional regeneration, The essence of, of my quarrel with that is I'm not going to sit back and, and say nothing out of the desire to please men because I love you. There are people attending this meeting, my own family, people attending this meeting whom I have spent hours in prayer for. And I love you. And I think the most hateful thing I could do is believe that you are hearing a watered-down half-gospel that won't save and not try to warn you. Because I'm not seeking the approval of men, but of God. When the gospel is preached, it should be preached in such a way as it pleases God, as it receives His approval. And if we preach His gospel that pleases Him and receives His approval, that's the gospel that actually has the power to save sinners. The gospel is about the glory of God demonstrating His mercy and His grace, saving His people through the life, death, and resurrection of His Son. There is only one gospel that saves, and we must have it right. And this gospel demands faith, demands repentance. It demands your life. We quote very often Romans 10, 9, If you will confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Realize Paul was writing that in a time 
where to be an upstanding Roman citizen, especially to engage in business, you had to go into the pagan temple, throw a pinch of incense, and say, Caesar is Lord. And Paul is saying, you must confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. This is why Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him take up his cross and follow me. Whoever comes after me and doesn't hate his own father, mother, brother, and sister, doesn't forsake all that he has, he's not worthy of me. He cannot be my disciple. The message of, of the gospel demands, yes, faith, yes, repentance, yes, submission to Christ as Lord, and absolute surrender. Because Jesus said, whoever puts his hands to the plow and looks back, doesn't say he's backslidden and hopefully in next year's revival meetings he can rededicate his life he says he's not worthy of the kingdom of heaven there is only one gospel worth proclaiming and that is God's gospel and that's the only gospel that saves and regardless of what it costs me friends it has cost me friends Family, it has cost me family. Ridicule, hatred, slander, mockery. It's cost me all of those things. Physical suffering, it's cost me all of those things. I'm not going to move. My desire is not to quote unquote bash anyone. My desire is that the true gospel be proclaimed because it's the only one that saves sinners. And if you watch this and you've gotten this far through it, then let me issue a challenge to you. If you are, if you are in those circles where you have become one of the people who are included in the group that I have shared concern about in the emotional, decisional, Jesus is your ticket to go out in the rapture and get out of hell gospel card. If that's you, let me challenge you to do this. Read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Read the book of Acts. And show me, show me, or don't even have to show me, don't even have to say anything to me. Look for yourself where the tribulation and the rapture are used to tell people they better get in before it's too late. Show me anywhere where Jesus preached the gospel, where the apostles preached the gospel and said, if you would just step out in the aisle, Jesus will meet you there. Show me anywhere where the gospel was preached, where absolute surrender to the Lordship of Christ was not given as a demand. Show me an altar or an altar call before the time of Charles Finney. We like to quote those old Baptist circles, Seek ye out the old paths, wherein is the good way, and walk therein. This is where, this is where our faith came from. 
This predates Finneyism and revivalism and dispensationalism. Predates all of that. Let's just take God at his word and let's preach his gospel. This is the Church Militant Podcast. My name is Jordan Brogan. Thank you for listening.